This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. At the outbreak of the Irish Civil War in 1922, Barry's Hotel on Great Denmark Street in Dublin's north inner city was one of the anti-treaty IRA strongholds. However, the hotel's connection with the Republican movement went back further than that. Annie Farrington was the owner and manageress of the hotel, and she regularly took in IRA men who were on the run during the War of Independence. On one occasion, about six or seven of them came, and they were in a dreadful condition. They'd been sleeping inside the walls, surrounding some church for several nights, and had a few days' growth of beard. The hotel was full of guests, and I went and took some of the mattresses from the beds and placed them on the drawing room floor, leaving the guests with only the box springs. They only stayed one night. I fed everyone that came in like that. When the truce brought the War of Independence to an end, the IRA entered a frenzied period of debate over the terms of the treaty, which gave up the six counties of Northern Ireland and included an oath of allegiance to the King. A convention of predominantly anti-treaty IRA men was held in March 1922, which voted to oppose the treaty. This caused a split in the organisation, the pro-treaty side becoming part of the Free State Army. The majority of the anti-treaty leaders stayed in Barry's Hotel for the duration of this tumultuous period, one of whom was Liam Lynch, who had later become the commanding general of the anti-treaty IRA. From his room in Barry's, he wrote to his brother, who was training to be a priest. This series of letters, held by the National Library, that Liam sent his brother Tom over the next year, followed the trajectory of the Civil War, as seen through Lynch's eyes. He begins optimistically. We have started to put an end to the free state and general disgraceful compromise, and we mean to now see it through. We are certain of having 85% of the army behind us. The rest will be with us by a few weeks. We are entirely on our feet these times. However, it is all going tip-top at the moment. Annie Farrington recalled Lynch. Liam Lynch was a marvellous character and the other lads used to warn us not to say anything flippant before him as he was very religious and they looked upon him as a saint. After Liam's death, about August or September, his mother came to see us and wanted to find out everything we knew about Liam. She went to see the room he'd occupied. She wanted to walk in his footsteps, she said. The Civil War began in earnest when Free State troops attacked a garrison of the IRA which had seized control of the forecourts. Lynch wrote to his brother as the attack was imminent. I write this from GHQ forecourts, not knowing the error we will be attacked by machine gunner artillery. We have a well-armed garrison of about 150 men with GHQ staff and we need only call on the Dublin Brigade or any part of the country when support will come in numbers. I am absolutely certain that the Free State was sent to its doom by our action last week. Sad it is to risk having a clash with our old comrades, but we cannot count the cost. The remainder of the Dublin IRA assembled at Barry's Hotel, where its leaders had set up their headquarters. The morning of the attack, William, my porter, went down to the rear of the building and climbed some steps to see what was happening. He poked his head in the door at the top of the steps. We were watching him, and we saw him suddenly withdraw his head from a flying bullet. He had a narrow escape. The people inside the building thought he was one of the attacking party. He hastened back to us, and within an hour our own hotel was occupied by the Republicans and the Citizen Army. Madame Markovitz was in charge of the Citizen Army, and the leaders of the Republicans were there from time to time, including De Valera. This was on the Tuesday morning and the leaders were there till Wednesday night. They established their headquarters in the dining room. The first thing they did was to knock all the glass out of the doors and windows. They sandbagged the windows and stuck guns out between the bags. 
They allotted different rooms to the various purposes. They cleared out all the visitors, about 40, giving them barely time to pack their bags. They cleared out the staff, but I refused to go. And Miss Kyo and William the Porter stayed with me. I was half out of my mind thinking of all the money I owed the bank which financed the purchase of the hotel and I now saw the possibility of the whole place going up in smoke. This was the reason I refused to leave, although they pointed out the risk I was running by staying. They had the doors barricaded with my good tables and furniture. They didn't use the door opposite Rutland Place for fear of being fired on but they opened up the door of the second house. At each side of the inner which this door led into, they bored holes for guns for the protection of this door. While the battle was underway, Free State troops took over buildings adjacent to the hotel to snipe from. Historian Porig Yates's father was a child in a room that saw some of the action, as he explains here. Uh, during the Civil War, the headquarters of the anti-treaty IRA in the initial fighting was Barry's Hotel, which is across the road here on Great Denmark Street. Uh, and the commander there was Oscar Trainer. Uh, and as the Free State troops cleared O'Connell Street and closed in on Barry's, a group of National Army soldiers occupied my granny's flat, which was at the back of a house in Parnell Street, which you can just about see over my shoulder. Uh, and uh, they started sniping at Barry's. Uh, now, I heard that story from my father. Uh, many years later, I heard a story from a veteran of the Civil War uh, in the Citizen Army who had gone with Countess Markovich up to Barry's after they were driven out of O'Connell Street. And he told me the story about being sniped at from a building in Rutland Place, which is where I'm standing now. It was obviously my granny's flat. And he said, at first they thought the firing was coming from the Orange Hall, which is at the bottom of this laneway, uh, on the right-hand side as, as you're looking at it, um, which was a natural enough supposition to make at the time, uh, and had been burnt out, but the structures were there. And it was Countess Markovich who worked out what was happening, and she told them to aim their fire at this house instead and she told them not to try and hit anyone in specifically but on her order they were to fire at this window together and the sheer number of bullets being fired would generate so much dust and, and uh, uh, splinters of glass and uh, brickwork and wood and so on that it would blind anyone firing from inside. Um, so that's what they did and the firing stopped. Now I've no record from my, my father of anyone being injured in the house but certainly said at, at, at one point they were rumbled, the snipers, and they left again. And they left some of their rations with my granny for herself and her three sons. Uh, but that was my family's total involvement in the Irish Civil War. Though driven out of that particular room, the Free State troops were gaining the upper hand in this battle and began to use heavy artillery. When Moran's Hotel, which was also occupied by the Republicans, was being shelled, the garrison and Barry's began boring holes in the walls of the house at each side of the hotel to assure a way of escape in case of an attack. As I went up the stairs, I saw the Mathis work, but when I came back down a short time afterwards, they had got word to leave the hotel and they cleared out, advising us to go with them as they were leaving landmines, one under the front door and another under the roof in the top story. They left guns sticking out the window when they were going. However, the three of us stayed and I asked the man who was preparing the mines to cut the wires if that was humanly possible. But if he had to do his duty, he could do it, but that we were staying. We knelt down to pray and I believe I said prayers that were never heard before or since. The man at the mines touched me on the shoulder and said, It's all right, miss. I have detached them. Before they left, they went very hard on us to throw in our lot with them and take our chance with the other women of Come On Naman who were with them. 
I said, if the house is going up, I'll go with it. We have nowhere else to go. The IRA forces were driven out of the area and Dublin was secured by the Free State. The night after the garrison left, a couple of fellows, probably thinking there was nobody in the house, broke into loot. Miss Kyo, myself and the cook who had returned had brought our beds downstairs to the dining room where there was a lift to the kitchen. We heard a noise and I went to the lift where we distinctly heard voices. We were afraid to go down so we called William and Miss Kyo opened the front door and asked her passerby for help. He said he could send somebody up from the corner. Four or five Free State soldiers came with a machine gun. Some of them went down the kitchen stairs and called upon the intruders to come out. Instead they retreated to the scullery under the area steps. The soldier with the machine gun took up his position on the steps of the other house and fired. We heard a most awful scream and the soldiers went into the scullery and brought out the three looters. One of them was wounded by a bullet which entered through the mouth into the brain. They brought him to the matter, I think in an ambulance, where he died almost immediately. Dublin had been suffering from the effects of years of violence and deprivation that had begun in 1913, was cemented with the Easter Rising and then the War of Independence. The Civil War moved to more rural parts of Ireland, where things weren't going too well for Liam Lynch, as he wrote to his brother. The disaster of this war is sinking to my very bones when I count the loss of Irish manhood and the general havoc of civil war. The IRA have now been hopelessly let down by their former comrades and leaders. They have stooped to lower methods than the British, including murder gangs and vile propaganda. Who could have dreamt that all our hopes would have been so blighted? Annie Farrington in Dublin began to pick up the pieces of her life and her hotel. The Republican garrison left a large quantity of food behind them. A party of them called a day or two afterwards with a van and took a good deal of it. They left the bread and we were bringing this up from the kitchen for days and throwing it out to the door to the people on the street who looked half starved. We could not open the door wide to give it to them as we were afraid they would rush in and mob us. I started to take visitors before the glass was put in the windows. I kept the shutters shut. Liam Lynch's correspondence with his brother along with the Civil War, had begun in Barry's Hotel in March 1922. The correspondence ended a year later, in April 1923, with a letter to Tom not from his brother Liam, but from Liam's second-in-command, Frank Aiken, explaining the circumstances of his death. The Civil War ended with Lynch's death, as Aiken gave the order to dump arms soon afterwards, bringing to an end this bloody chapter in Ireland's history. For more stories from this interesting period, go to www.storiesfrom1916.com I'm Owen Cody. Thanks for listening.